let me wake up a girl. I believe God is a God of miracles. I'm like, God, you can do this. Like you can let me wake up a girl and change everybody's memories. Just, you know, let me be me. Or if you're not going to do that, then please, God, just kill me. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone. It's Gary Allen again, and I hope you are enjoying Season 3 here at Holy Heretics. In many ways, it's our most important season to date because we are doing our best to uplift marginalized voices, to center people who've been ignored and silenced not only by the church, but by culture at large. And the next two episodes with Natalie Drew are no different. Despite what many conservative Christian circles may claim, Christian and transgender are not mutually exclusive. Natalie is living proof of this as she navigates life post-transition within conservative Christian circles. She, her wife Heather, and their two teenagers are recent transplants to the heart of Reformed country, God bless her, West Michigan. Natalie has spent the last 13 years as an HR professional and currently serves as an HR manager for a Fortune 500 company in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. After six years as an infantry soldier in the Army, Natalie has committed her life to advancing an ethic of Christian nonviolence and fighting for the rights of trans people. She is dedicated to elbowing her way into Christian spaces to help make room for her LGBTQIA siblings who have historically been rejected and despised by the church. Now, what Natalie doesn't share in her bio is just how much she has been the target of some of the most heinous attacks by evangelical Christians. And their dehumanizing tactics remind me of a quote from Holocaust survivor and author Viktor Frankl, who wrote, There are two human races, the race of the decent and the race of the indecent. There are those who have compassion for the other, and there are those who want to crucify the other. There are those who listen and those who don't. There are those who value human life and those who do not. There are those who destroy, and there are those who heal. And sadly, so many of the people who want to destroy anyone who doesn't fit their societal standards are evangelical Christians. And most of them are willing to resort to violence all in Jesus's name. People like Natalie are literally fighting for the right to simply exist, to live, to be human, to raise their children in peace. So I hope you will listen intently as she shares her story of addiction, of trauma, of transition, of coming out to her wife, and of healing from her childhood in a religious cult. I also hope you will be intrigued to join her as she shares how she has also transitioned from a U.S. soldier to a pacifist for taking the words of Jesus so seriously that she refuses to cause harm even to those who wish to cause her harm. And oh, by the way, this conversation was so meaningful and so intense, we decided to share it in two parts. 
So today you're going to listen to part one of the conversation, and the second part will drop in a couple of weeks. All right, enough of the intro. Let's get to the show, and let's get to this incredibly personal conversation with Natalie about what it means to be human and what it means to exist in the body that God gave her. Well, Natalie, I'm I'm excited to talk today for a couple of different reasons. One, I, I want to hear more about your transition story and and honestly, kind of selfishly educate myself on how I I can become a better ally. Uh, but in particular, I, I'm really fascinated to learn and find out how that transition story potentially intersects with your journey from being in the military. Uh, to now your very uh, wonderfully outspoken posture and belief on nonviolence and pacifism. So I am won't assume too much, but I, but I guess maybe those two things intersected at some point in your life. Do you mind kind of walking us through that process of maybe your transition and or how it impacted or, or affected your your move from being an active military member to embracing uh, nonviolence. Um, absolutely. So, I guess to start out with my transition story, I really have to go back to the beginning. I was uh, born and raised in the independent fundamental Baptist world. Um, if a lot of people use the term fundamentalist, um, I always kind of cringe when I hear people refer to Southern Baptists as fundamentalists because to somebody who grew up in the IFB world, it is a whole different animal. And so, you know, I grew up in that world where it was King James Version only. Women and children are to be seen and not heard. You know, it was a very spiritually, emotionally, and physically abusive world that I grew up in, both in the church and at home. Mm. And so um, I, yeah, I remember about five or six. Yeah, I was born in 1979. So when I started having these realizations about who I was, um, it was the mid-1980s. And growing up in what I truly believe is a cult, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. I just knew I wasn't like the boys in class. Hmm. And I can never really, I could never vocalize what it was. I just, I mean, I just always gravitated towards um, the girls in class. I, I mean, growing up, you know, I would have to really force myself to be friends with boys, to play the role. And I just never felt comfortable um, in that sphere. So, you know, I, I grew up in that and, you know, I had no, no safe place to talk to my parents. I could never have taken this to them. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter what, I mean, they still struggle with it. And so I didn't have anybody to talk to and I didn't have, I wasn't equipped with the vocabulary. It wasn't part of our cultural vocabulary at the time. And so I, I did what a lot of young trans girls do. 
I kind of retreated into myself and I became very angry and very violent. I think it was in fifth or fifth grade. I remember losing count at about 50 fights that I got into. Oh, wow. Um, so I was constantly fighting. I was um, in junior high or middle school. You know, I, I, I was suspended, what, whether out of school or in school, I think a total of six times for fighting or, you know, doing things that, um, you know, one to kind of prove how manly I was. Mm. And, but it, it really started once I started going through puberty, it became so much worse to the point. And I grew up believing, you know, you got to, you got to regurgitate this sinner's prayer. If you don't pray this sinner's prayer, (laughs) you know, especially in King James version only world, if you do it without using the King James version Bible, you're not really saved and you're going to go burn in hell forever. And so I remember 13 throughout my teen years, you know, I would, I would hear what the preachers would say at church. Um, my only exposure to the LGBT community was really just what the preachers said about gay people um, as I was growing up. And they never talked about trans people. So every time I had these thoughts about, you know, I wish I was a girl or, you know, this or that, um, I would lay in bed that night just tears streaming down my face because I'm like, well, I'm clearly not saved. If I was Mm. saved, if I was truly a Christian, I wouldn't have these thoughts. And so every night it was a nightly routine. I'd be like, dear God, you know, um, please save me. You know, I, I would go through the the Romans road to salvation. Um, (laughs) you had every good fundamentalist child would have the, the verses taped to the front uh, inside front of their Bible. And I would, I would constantly read the Romans road. I would constantly pray and ask God to, um, save me because clearly I'm not. And, but then every prayer would always end up like, you know, like, God, please take away this desire, take away these thoughts. Um, because, or if you, or better yet, just let me wake up a girl. Like, let me, like, just, I know you can, I believe God is a God of miracles. I'm like, God, you can do this. Like, you can let me wake up a girl and change everybody's memories. Just, you know, let me be me. And, or if you're not going to do that, then please, God, just kill me. Mm. Um, it was so mentally, emotionally, physically and spiritually painful. So I would go to bed every night crying and praying these prayers and wake up the next morning and just that crushing, uh, like, well, God clearly, I am, God doesn't care about me. And so God's already condemned me to hell. But in that abusive world I grew up in, you sure as heck don't turn away from the faith. Right. Even if you believe that God has completely already condemned you, um, you keep going through the motions because maybe one time, and I kept holding onto that hope, that one time 
I'll get the prayer just right. Mm -hmm. I will say just the right words and I will magically be saved. Um, It was such a warped understanding of who God is. And so I grew up uh, like this. And I remember when I was about 13 or 14, we went because like any good cult, you go to their schools. Mm-hmm. You you go to their schools and you plan to go to their colleges. You marry their the the person you meet at college and you move back and you repeat the cycle with your kids. And I remember we were in chapel one day, and they uh, they had asked you know they're like okay everybody when we turn off the lights we just want y'all to have fun with this scream at the top of your lungs. And so it's like one of those mirages, you know, like we're in the, oh my gosh, we get to actually have fun. And so (laughs) they turn off the lights and we're all screaming. It's a room full of kids. And then they, the preacher flips the light back on and he's like, now imagine that screaming in for eternity in a lake of fire. Now who's ready to pray a prayer? Mm. And I was baptized. I, I've been. I had been baptized three times by the time I was eighteen years old, um, and so, you know. But even though we were in that world, I somehow, with no ties to this to the school, I for some reason was like, I want to go to Texas A and M University. It was my lifelong dream. I, you know, I lived and breathed Texas A&M football. Even as a kid, I I knew all the fight songs (laughs) and had no family connection to the school. So my junior year, we decided to move down to, uh, my parents moved down to Texas because we knew I was going to go to school there um, so we can get in-state tuition. And we get there and I go to, I go to A&M and, you know, but the pattern is the same. I now this time I'm doing it unsupervised, and you know I was still getting in fights. I mm. I got suspended from a city league softball uh, team because I yelled and threw my glove at an umpire because um, I just got mad, mm. and you know I my it got to the point where I got into a fight at the A and M. A recreation center. And my parents were like, you need to go to anger management. But of course they had no idea what the source of that anger was. And ironically, nobody ever questioned my faith for it. <laughs> um, and so I, I went to anger management, you know, kind of checked off that box. And what it really did was make me a little bit smarter in how I did this. And you know, it was about this time that I met Heather, uh, my wife, and you know, I was I was somebody who really enjoyed the social aspect of college. So my grades were really bad, and so I was like, you know, what can I do? I've got Heather and I had gotten engaged, and I was like, I need to be able to provide. And I was like, I get, I found the perfect job. It's a job that lets me be violent <laughs> without the condemnation of society. Mm-hmm. And actually, I would be held up as a hero by society. So I joined the army and I had enlisted to join um, to go special forces. 
And it's funny because I read somewhere before that there is a higher percentage of former special forces soldiers that are transgender than there is in the general population. Really? And it's this phenomenon they call the flight to hypermasculinity. We want to prove we, it's like we want to beat the trans out of ourselves Mm -hmm. by doing the most masculine thing possible. And what's more masculine than uh, being special forces. Yeah. Right. And so we, um, so I joined the army and I, I, when I was at basic, I fractured a vertebrae. So um, I, by that point I had been married for like a month and I was like, you know what? Special forces is not my thing. So I'm going to, I became just a regular run of the mill infantry soldier. And um, we, we, I went to airborne school. Uh, My wife and I, we got stationed. uh, We got orders to go up to Alaska to Fort Richardson, which we absolutely loved. And that's where our son was born. Um, I deployed, um, I deployed out of Alaska. I went to Iraq for 13 months and, wow. you know, I came back different. Hmm. Um, you know, I saw things over there. What I think the most troubling thing that I saw over there was just the complete erasure of my humanity. Hmm. And, yeah, I remember thinking we had, there was a mission or not a mission. We were at our patrol base one time and a local villager brought his son in. Some uh, local insurgents had shot his, like probably about a 15 year old boy had shot him in the head. Hmm. So this uh, man who's just absolutely heartbroken brings his son and is just wanting us to help. And so we bring the boy into the patrol base. Uh, we, we wouldn't allow the dad in and, you know, my med, our medic goes over and he's evaluating him and he's like, Hey, I need somebody to come over and hold the IV. So I immediately ran over there cause I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And I remember our, my medic was like, Oh yeah, I've never done it. Tr- like we, it was clear the boy was going to die. Hmm. And, he was like, I've never done a tracheotomy. I'm going to practice. Oh, wow. Now, th- this is how warped war makes you hmm. um, because the medic's not a bad guy. Right. You know, and, but he wants to just practice medical procedures on a 15 year old boy who's dying in front of us. And we, um, so I'm holding the bag and he, he, start doing the tracheotomy and he, he put the tube in too far and like stomach acid blew all over his face. Jeez. And I remember laughing hysterically at that. Hmm. And it, it was just, and it's one of those things you don't even realize until you come back and it's quiet. And that adrenaline is not constantly pumping through your uh, brain and you start to, and this is what, causes so much such a high rate of suicide amongst veterans because once you get back into that stillness you you start to it's when i that's kind of when i started realizing that this is not what humans are supposed to be doing Hmm. we the fact that ptsd is a thing tells us that's our body telling us we are not supposed to be doing this and 
But during my entire time in the army, I probably went to church less than five times. I was in the army for six years and um, it was, I was what you would call a cultural Christian. You know, if you'd asked me, if you'd asked my people who knew me, they're like, oh yeah, um, they're a Christian. And, um, you know, but certainly there was no fruit in my life. Mm. And so, but I, I got back from Iraq and, you know, it was a big struggle for Heather and I because our son was 18 months old when I got back and she had been a single mom for 13 months. And, you know, I come back and I'm like, no, I think I wanted things to run the way they were before, but things had changed. But then we, um, I got uh, orders to go back uh, down to Georgia. And we, so we moved down to Georgia and our daughter was born. And it was during that period, I think around 2008, that my back completely gave out on me. Hmm. And so the army did what the army always does. They threw enough pills at the situation to try it because all they cared about was, can you pull a trigger? Mm. And so um, at one point, at my worst point, I was taking, um, I was prescribed the strongest Percocet they make. Um, I was on uh, Ambien for sleep medica- my sleep medication. Um, I was on muscle relaxers. I was on uh, gabapentin for my nerves. I was, um, they, they put me on an antidepressant and then put me on a second antidepressant to counteract the first antidepressant. And then they put me on a third to counteract the effects of the first two. So I was on three different antidepressants at one time. Wow. And I had hit rock bottom. Um, I was, I was taking Percocet like they were candy. I was, um, I was probably taking, um, 15 pills at 15 Percocet a day. Wow. And, you know, I remember thinking I remember we were in our house in Georgia. Like I barely remember my daughter's first year of life. Um, I was so heavily addicted and, I remember laying in the bathtub one night and I started, I I was laying in the bathtub and I had a loaded pistol in my right hand and I started slamming my head against the uh, wall behind me and Heather comes in and she's just like, that's it. We're done. Hmm. And it wasn't like we're done as in our marriage, but we're done doing this. Hmm. And so she went, grabbed all my pills and flushed them all. Ooh. And you know that it, it was, it saved my life, but also, you know, there's also, you can't, when you're taking that many pills, you just can't go. Right. You can't just. <laughs> and so that led to a whole ordeal with the army, um, having to go into substance. Ab- they almost put me in inpatient. Um, but I finally, I, I had back surgery and after back surgery, um, things started getting better. One, because I could no longer take pain medication. And so I, it was about 2010 that 
I was medically retired from the army. And still at this point, I hadn't even considered nonviolence because my belief in nonviolence is so rooted in my faith. Hmm. And we, um, but I, my last couple of years, even while I was addicted to um, and abusing pain pills, um, I was somehow able to get my MBA during that program or during that time. You know, we, I, I was medically retired and we didn't really know what to do. We didn't know where to go. Um, I, yeah, I had my MBA, but I had no business experience and I was 30 years old. Hmm. And so I got a call from, I was actually, we went back to Texas to, uh, and we were staying with uh, Heather's parents. And I got a call from a company in Houston uh, about an HR generalist role. And I'm like, okay, I'll go hear them out. HR would have never crossed my mind. Um, I always joke, I I spoke this week at uh, the Chamber of Commerce here, and I talked about how, you know, in my MBA program, there were 12 courses. I got 11 A's and one B, and my one B was in human resource management. And (laughs) that's what I do for a living. And so... um, we settled into Houston and, you know, we were there for about eight months before we we were renting a house and then we bought a house in the suburbs. And it was funny because this was the fifth house we had offered on and we finally got it. And it just so happened to be across the street from a church. (laughs) And we hadn't, we hadn't been to a church in so long but it was a church of Christ and Heather had grown up church of Christ. So we knew that our parents would ask, Hey, there's a church. Have you all been? <laughs> right. So we're like, let's just go. Let's check it off the box to say that we went and we went and it changed our lives forever. I tear up just thinking about it <laughs> because for the first time in my life, I walked into a church and felt loved and it was, it was such a radical experience for us. And so we started going and we started, you know, quickly we found like, Oh, like Heather and I would lay in bed at night going through the reading the Bible, like, and especially like the, the, the red letters and we, we talk about what we were reading. You know, we were reading it through fresh eyes, even though we were both raised in the church. Like we were seeing things that we never saw before. So, um, and I would email the pa- the preacher there. My, hey, Aaron, um, am I crazy for reading this? Like, or in understanding this like this? And mm-hmm. he like, absolutely not. Church of Christ, even though it's not so much the case anymore, they're founding very rooted in nonviolence. Huh. And so that's when we started kind of like, okay, this seems like if I'm to take the red letter seriously, I don't see how I can get around this. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't really have much of a, I, I guess, the theological meat behind it. But I knew what I was reading, and I was reading what Jesus was saying about loving your enemies. Um, 
you know, and what what it showed, what Jesus showed to us when he loved his enemies, you know, it was that self-sacrificial love to the point of death. And it just really, and that when we started kind of embracing nonviolence, um, a lot of my PTSD when it came to the army and my deployment started going away hmm. and it helped me process a lot of that. It was also about that time that I came across Greg Boyd. Um, mm, yep. Yeah. Well, uh, he is my favorite theologian. Um, he has had such an impact on me and his work, uh, crucifixion of the warrior God. It, it took away that one thing that I still struggled with. Like, how do I reconcile, um, what we read in the old Testament mm. and what we see revealed in the new Testament through Jesus? You know, because I'm like, if, if Jesus is the exact representation of God, then that's, that's got to inform how we read the Old Testament. And I can't, but what I see of Jesus is nonviolent. So that tells me that God must be nonviolent, which means I have to reevaluate how I understand the Old Testament. And so, um, you know, it, it was, I didn't realize at the time just how important kind of the, this progression when it came to nonviolence was in terms of coming to grips with who I am, because I've always said it is easier for me. It is so much easier for me to love my enemies than to love myself. Mm. And I really struggled with that. And as I began to really embrace, you know, that enemy love, it started creating a space to where I could wrestle with the hatred I had for myself. Wow. And creating that space and really, and, you know, starting to understand some of the um uh, vocabulary, starting to understand some of, I guess, the research and just who, what it means to be transgender. Um, that space that was created by that embrace of nonviolence and really trying to ex- expand that enemy love to myself, um, that it, it made that self-realization that, um, it made it possible. Hmm. And so I think it was about 2016. Um, I had come out to a friend at work and, you know, she, her strongest recommendation was for me. She's like, you've got to tell your wife, like I, you owe it to your, you cannot continue down a life where you're every day you are lying to the person that you've, that you and her have committed to each other so, um, I had, a. it was in, it was 2016 and I had, I come out and we were laying in bed one night and I told Heather and, you know, it was a lot to process. What, what did, what did you tell her? Like, were, was it, Hey, I'm, I think I'm female or because it's so much courage to ha- to have that conversation. 
so I was struggling very badly with depression and you know, it, it was easy for everybody in my life, my parents, my brothers, um, even Heather and the kids, um, to kind of chalk that up to, to the army. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, but you're a soldier who's depressed. <laughs> Find me a soldier who isn't depressed. Mm. And, um, so I, I believe I told her that as I, Heather, I think I know, I'm, I think I know why I'm depressed and constantly struggling with suicidal thoughts. And, um, and I was like, I think I'm transgender and, you know, and her first reaction and in no way is she wrong for this reaction. She was just like, okay, but no, (laughs) basically like you can do what you want to do in the privacy privacy, but I don't want to see it. I don't want the kids to see it. Mm. And I would, I respected that. I I didn't want to push, you know, it wasn't something that she committed to when we got married. And so we, um, uh, but the, like, that's the weird thing about coming out is it is this massive, at least for me, it was a massive weight off my shoulders. Every time I told somebody just, the sense of relief and peace in telling them, but then came the expectations like, you know, okay. I've told people like, you know, now I'm assuming that they think I need to take more steps than I was taking. I felt like, okay, well, I, I told people when can I, if can I ever actually come out or am I just at this point a fraud? You know, somebody who's, you know, yeah, I'm transgender, but I'm not going to do anything. Mm. And again, I had, even back then, I had um, probably not the best understanding of transition. And so we, um, uh, the depression worsened um, because you see a light at the end of the tunnel and then you realize you're never going to reach it. And it would just, I would spiral out of control, come home from work and immediately just crawl into bed and cry. But I remember I had asked Heather one time, I told her, I was like, Heather, we both know where this is going. Like it was such an inevitability in my mind that one day I was going to die by suicide. Mm -hmm. And my biggest fear in life was dying alone And the Heather and the kids walking in on my lifeless body, you know, by this point I had no weapons in the, uh, in our home because I was, we were pacifists, Um, you know? And so uh, I asked Heather, I was like, since we both know where this is going, since I don't want to die alone, since I don't want y'all to just walk in on my body, um, can I please take some pills and y'all just sit here and be with me as I drift away. Mm. And that I think was that final breaking point for Heather. Like, obviously she said, no, (laughs) like, no, I'm not going to sit here as you uh, die by suicide. Um, And we, uh, so she's like, we, you need to see a doctor. 
go see a doctor. Um, I went and saw the doctor. I was diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Um, and the doc, I went back home and I was like, the doctor wants me to start hormone uh, replacement there. I, I, they also had me seeing a therapist and <clears throat> we, um, we decided, okay, here's how we're going to, I did, we did some homework. Um, the physical effects, the physical, noticeable physical changes, they don't really start to become permanent, like for a couple months mm. and like really kind of like the breast growth. Mm. And so we're like, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll sit down with the kids and we like, well, I'll actually come out to them because they still had no clue. And we sat down with them and we said, guys, this is who I am. Um, this is what I want to do. As I, in two months, as I, we will get together as a family. And if any of us objects or if in, everybody here will have veto power, mm. uh, because I, one thing I've said over and over again, we will, we transition as a family or we don't transition at all. Um, I, it wasn't fair of me to force this onto them. But two months later, the, the mental health change, the improvement in my mental health was so noticeable. It's like a fog. Like if you're walking through a really dense fog and then the fog lifted mm. and that, that sense of safety and that sense of security, because now you can see where you're going and it was obvious to all of us then. Um, uh, but even then it was like, okay, I'm just going to take hormones. Like I'm, I'm social transition is not on the table. You know, I'm going to, I'm just going to do what I have to do to survive. And, but then again, you have that problem of seeing that light at the end of the tunnel, mm. you took a step and now you want to run. Mm. <laughs> and we, um, it, it, when you can't run, you start getting that triggers the depression again. You feel like you're stuck. And so finally in 2019, I had come out. I'd actually came out to a coworker of mine at, at Texas. I was actually working at Texas A&M at this point. And I remember sitting in, uh, she, she was one of our Starbucks managers. And I remember sitting in her office and I was like, Victoria, I got to tell you, I'm transgender. And she was like, I was wondering because I had long hair by this point. Mm -hmm. I had grown it out. And she is like, because at A&M where uh, our boss made the men every day, men or people who he thought was a man, man, man uh, they had to wear like a button up shirt. And she was like, there are some days that you would wear a shirt and I, and I would look at you and I'd be like, are you only working out your pets? <laughs> and so I'm like, fair enough. The sports bra wasn't doing the job anymore. <laughs> and so, um, you know, so she was like, great. I mean, she, I knew she would be great about it. Vic, her name is Victoria. And, um, love her to death. And she, um, she was like, great. 
I'm getting married next year. I want you to come to my wedding. I'm like, absolutely. She's like, you can be yourself. And I was like, I'm so excited. And she's like, oh, by the way, one of our other managers is planning the wedding. And one of my, uh, the other managers will be there. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I guess I better tell them. (laughs) And so I told them and they were so supportive and, so th- that kind of gave me that courage I needed. And so I uh, came out in September to uh, my HR channel. You know, I, as an HR manager, I had my HR peers, my HR direct or regional HR. And I sent an email coming out to them. Being a trans woman in HR is the best place to be because if you're going to be anywhere that's going to be accepting of being trans is going to be an HR uh, community. And um, then I think about a month later, I sent an email to all the managers we had on campus, which is about like 55-ish and uh, coming out. And then I told him, even then I was like, I don't know when or if I will socially transition, but I wanted y'all to know who I am, who I truly am. And then, you know, once you're kind of out, it's it's just a matter of time. And so we went into the winter break and I was just like, you know what? When we come back from winter break, I'm doing it. I'm going to be Natalie. I'm going to be myself and walk into work as the woman that I have always innately knew that I was. Mm. And so I, Heather, we were living in College Station, Texas, and I was it was January 6th of 2020 and Heather stopped me before I left uh, the house and grabbed my hands and she prayed and I went to work and I remember thinking 2020 is going to be the greatest year of all time. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it's your fault. I apologize for breaking the world. You totally broke everything. Well, I, you know, so we get through 2020. I'm like, hey, 2020 kind of sucked after all. Um, But I've got my one year anniversary coming up. I want it like this. I'm going to be so happy on January 6th of 2021. Oh my God. Yeah. You're like a superhero. I I swear, I fundamentally changed the universe, apparently. Thank you for joining us for part one of this intimate conversation with Natalie Drew. Tune in two weeks from today for the final installment of our conversation as Natalie shares more about her calling and about the theology of nonviolence that she has embraced in her daily life. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.